Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 202 of the GDPR Weekly Show, the number one GDPR podcast worldwide. Coming up in this week's episode, we have news of a Japanese man who managed to lose a USB key with the data of a whole city's residence on the key. We then have news that Russia now leads the lead table for the number of data breaches. And in the UK, we have a survey that confirms the trend towards hybrid working. Remaining in the UK, Tarmac have been warned over a data breach. And also in the UK, we have a look at the changes planned in the data reform bill, which is promised by the government in the current legislative period. We then travel to the USA, where childcare apps have been found to lack data security. And we then have news that data that was stolen a couple of years ago from MGM hotels and resorts has now appeared freely on Telegram. We then travel to Australia, where the Queensland government has proposed changes to its data breach legislation. And then to America, where the University of Pittsburgh has paid compensation after a data breach. And talking of data breaches, we then look at what additional costs does a data breach bring to an organisation. We then travel to Washington State in the US, where MCG Health has had a data breach, and then to Maryland in the US, where Trident Care has had a data breach. And then finally this week, we have news of a brewing dispute between EU countries as to whether someone's location data from their mobile phone is personally identifiable information. So as always, a wide range of articles for you in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. We hope that you find the information in the articles useful and informative. Should you have any feedback for us, please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR Made Simple. Available now on Amazon. A Japanese man has managed to lose a USB stick with an entire city's personal details on it. The unnamed man placed the memory stick in a bag before an evening of drinking in the city of Amagasaki, northwest of Osaka. He spent several hours drinking in a local restaurant before eventually passing out on the street. When he eventually came round, he realised that both his bag and the memory stick were missing. The Japanese broadcaster NHK reports that the man, said to be in his 40s, works for a company tasked with providing benefits to tax exempt households. He had transferred the personal information of the entire city's residents onto the drive on Tuesday evening before meeting colleagues for a night out in the town. Officials said the memory stick included the names, birth dates and addresses of all the city's residents. It also included more sensitive information including tax details, bank account numbers and information on families receiving social security payments. Luckily for the man, the city officials said the data contained on the driver is encrypted and locked with a password. That is that there has been no sign of that anyone has attempted to access the information so far. But the embarrassing incident prompted an apology from officials with the city's mayor and other leaders bowing in apology to the residents. We deeply regret that we have profoundly harmed the public's trust in the administration of the city, an Amagasaki city official told a press conference. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. According to a survey conducted by Crypto Monday, Russia reported the most data breaches in quarter one of 2022. The country reported 3.5 million such incidents, representing an 11% surge on their quarter four 2021 occurrences. That increase or leapfrog the USA is the most affected country globally. Now, the increase in data breaches in Russia is perhaps no great surprise, given, of course, the ongoing war between 
Russia and Ukraine and the way that different hacker groups come out in favour of either Russia or Ukraine attacking the other side. But further confirming the link with the war, CryptoMoney's analysis shows that Russian data violations peaked in March. The country reported a 136% spike in those breaches compared to February. February was itself a five-fold jump from January. Though alarming, the Russian numbers pale in comparison to events elsewhere. Hong Kong, for instance, reported a 946% jump in those episodes. That upswing saw Hong Kong's load of data leaks hit the 311,000 mark in quarter 1 of 2022. Poland is another nation that reported a proliferation of data intrusion cases. The country's quarter 1 2022 tally for those events rose by 514% to stand at 916,000. But at the other extreme, it's interesting to see the countries that have reported a drop in data breach. South Korea has reduced data breaches by 92% in quarter 1 2022 compared with quarter 4 2021. Similarly, Brazil cut down its last quarter's numbers by 80%. Other nations that made big progress in containing data breaches were Spain with 70% reduction, Ukraine 67% reduction, Canada 63% reduction and India 62% reduction. The US that had been leading the way in these attacks reduced them by 47%. We've talked before on the GDPR Weekly Show about how the new trend to hybrid working is increasing the dangers to data security because of data being transferred from home to office and back again, rather than just relying on remote access to office systems. But it looks like we're going to have to find a solution, because data this week shows that the UK is settling into a three-day office week. The data from IWG, the world's largest flexible office and workspace provider, says that the UK's workforce has settled into a three-day office week as part of its transition to hybrid working. The results of their survey suggest that hybrid working with workers splitting time between home, a local office or workspace and occasionally a corporate headquarters has become the model of choice for post-pandemic office workers. This transition to hybrid working has been led by a shift to a three-day office week. IWD's data shows that Tuesday is the most popular day to be in the office this year, closely followed by Wednesday and then Thursday. It's perhaps no surprise that the most unpopular days are Monday and Friday. Growing footfall has been consistent across all regions of the UK, with businesses seeking greater flexibility in the office footprint in the city centre areas, as well as providing their employees with access to locations closer to where the employees actually live. IWG, whose brands include Regus and Spaces, biggest focus on expansion has been in suburban and rural areas across the UK. Last year, its demand for suburban office space increased by 29% in 2021, as more people turned their backs on long daily commutes and instead chose to work flexibly in the heart of their local community. This is supported by data from Indeed, the world's largest job site, which shows that year-on-year searches on the term hybrid have increased by 6,531% in the 12 months up to the end of April, making it one of the fastest growing search terms in the UK website. Mark Dixon, founder and CEO of IWG, said, The shift to more flexible ways of working is undeniable when you see the data showing that UK workers are wholeheartedly embracing a three-day office week. The data shows a strong appetite for spend, part of the time in an office environment, particularly local flexible spaces, and the era of long daily commutes is well and truly over. Employees want to continue spending more time with their family and friends and less time sitting on a busy train. The growing popularity of hybrid working amongst employees and businesses means that workers now have the freedom and flexibility to choose a location to work from which suits their lifestyle. And at the moment, UK office workers are choosing a midweek fix. The number of employees within IWG's network of approximately 300 locations across the UK 
steadily increased over the last few months, demonstrating an increase in demand for hybrid work solutions. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. Tarmac has got away with a warning for accidentally sharing cement market data with its trade association. On 4th of March 2022, Tarmac sent the Mineral Products Association cement clinker production volumes for its Tunstead plant in Derbyshire for the dates 2016-21. to The information was sent accidentally as part of another communication to the Mineral Products Association on a hidden tab of a spreadsheet. Although an accident, this was a breach of Article 3.7 of the Cement Market Data Order 2016, which prohibits the sharing of individual cement market data for five years. The prohibited data was only seen by one member of staff at the Mineral Products Association and Tarmac has since taken action to prevent a recurrence. The Competition and Markets Authority, the watchdog that polices compliance with the order, has taken a lenient view of the error. In a letter to the company this week, Competition and Markets Authority Director Alistair Thompson wrote, Given the nature of Tarmac's approach to preventing a recurrence, the CMA does not consider it appropriate to take formal enforcement at this time. The CMA will monitor Tarmac's compliance closely in future. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR Made Simple. Available now on Amazon. If you're a regular listener to GDPR Weekly Show, then you'll know that in episodes 195 and 201, we've spoken about the new UK Data Reform Bill. We promised that we'd have a deeper look into it, and so we're going to work that out over the next few weeks. But to start with this week, we thought we'd just look at some of the key changes that the government needs to proceed with. One of the areas it's keen to proceed with is what it calls reducing barriers to responsible innovation. What does that mean in reality? Well, it means that they actually don't come up with a definition for what constitutes research. They're going to change the rule over the instances where personal data can be repurposed, i.e. it's used for a different purpose than was identified at the point the data was collected. At the moment, obviously, under GDPR, you can't do that, but they build that into the new legislation that you will be able to. So if you collect data about someone today because of their current shopping habits and their future shopping habits, you'll be able to do that. They're going to provide a list of processing purposes that can be undertaken on the basis of legitimate interest without undertaking the balancing. The balancing at the moment is applied during a data protection impact assessment. They don't come up with a list of processing purposes where you don't need to carry out the balancing test. Personally, I don't quite understand what the point of this list is because it's either going to be so limited that it's only going to apply in very few circumstances or it's going to be so broad you may as well do away with the balancing test altogether. That's my personal view at the moment, but we wait to see what will actually be in the bill. It's all going to look at how should fairness be interpreted in an artificial intelligence context, and also allow the processing of special category personal data through artificial intelligence for migration purposes. Now again, that's a major step away from GDPR, so we wait to see what actual detail is on that. The government's also promising to reform Article 22 of GDPR, and it's also going to say that the standard of anonymisation will be clarified. Hints we're getting from government is the standard for anonymisation will be lower than the standard required under EU GDPR, but we wait to see. The next section that they're addressing is reducing burdens on businesses and delivering better outcomes for people. In reducing the burdens, they're going to change the role of a data protection officer, so instead of a data protection officer, DPO, having to be independent, i.e. not a major shareholder in the company or organisation, they're going to remove that and say that a DPO can be any senior responsible individual, but it still doesn't have to be a named individual. And as soon as you carry out the role of the DPO, it is not going to be called a DPO. And to us, that just seems a little bit of sort of playing with words rather than actually achieving anything practical. 
However, one thing that is going to be changing is the requirement to maintain Article 30 registers, otherwise known as ROPA, and to undertake data protection impact assessments, DPIAs, will be removed with more flexible requirements relating to risk management and data inventories. Again, we need to see the detail in the bill to understand whether this is actually going to be a major change or whether it's, again, just plain with words. Because what they're saying is, you're still going to have to have a personal data inventory. Hello, isn't that what an Article 30 register is? And also saying that you're going to have to carry out risk assessments on data that you're now collecting. Well, isn't that what DPIA is all about? So, again, I suspect this is just plain with words. But until we actually see the bill in its entirety, we don't know. We're just getting hints from the government of what they're looking to change. And they're also saying now that prior consultation for high-risk processing will be voluntary. However, such consultation will be incentivised as it will be taken into account as a mitigating factor during any future investigation or enforcement action. They've clarified the wording on the threshold for refusing to respond to a data subject access request. That probably is a good thing. And in terms of cookies, the requirement to obtain consent for cookies will be relaxed in relation to a broader class of purposes. But, interestingly, consent will still be required for cross-site tracking. On a similar vein, soft opt-in marketing consent will be extended to non-commercial entities such as charities and political parties. Moving away from maybe computers for a moment, restrictions on nuisance tools will be tightened and there will be a new right for the ICO to take enforcement action on the basis of tools generated as opposed to tools connected. One other thing that's changing is the enforcement regime under the Privacy and Electronic Communication Regulations 2003, otherwise known as PECA, the enforcement regime will be increased to bring it into line with GDPR because currently fines under PECA are capped at half a million pounds and that cap will be removed. They're also talking about boosting trade and reducing barriers to data flows. So they're saying that there'll be a risk-based approach to adequacy decisions when the ICO is considering which external countries are adequate as far as UK GDPR is concerned. And they'll also look at the proportionality of appropriate safeguards. And interestingly here, they're also including the opportunity for the Secretary of State to override the ICO because they're looking to include the power for the Secretary of State to recognise alternative transfer mechanisms, even if the ICO has said that they're not adequate. It's interesting. A little bit, again, I think you'll be moving independent there, and I'm not sure how that's going to go down when the EU considers whether the UK regime is adequate as far as the EU GDPR and UK GDPR is concerned, but that's a whole different argument which we will come back to, no doubt, in the future. They're also talking about how the data reform bill will lead to delivering better public services. So they're saying that there'll be more sharing of personal data to support the public service delivery, i.e. more sharing of data between different government departments. And also an interesting one is that non-public bodies will be allowed to deliver public tasks. You'll know that public task is one of the reasons you can retain data under GR, and typically at the moment that only applies to things like local authority in the health service. But they're saying it's done be used by companies where companies can justify that they're doing that work for a public body. And interesting as well, another reason for holding data without needing consent will be that processing is in the substantial public interest. The substantial public interest is a concept where the specific circumstances have been set out in the schedule of the Data Protection Act 2018. The government is considering further whether to add additional circumstances. So again, that's one of the things where when the bill is finally published, the devil will be in the detail. The information about the bill also proposes aligning law enforcement and intelligence services processing with the UK GDPR and Data Protection Act 2018 provisions applicable to other controllers and processors. I think it's actually a very welcome move that the police, security services and presumably uh, Border Force, the immigration service, 
will now come under the full weight of UK GDPR. I think that's a positive thing, if that in the bill. And then they're talking about reform of the information office itself. They're talking about a new strategy framework for the ICO. They're talking about the ICO setting up expert panels to review codes of practice or guidance on complex or novel issues, and the Secretary of State being able to approve such codes or guidance. They're looking to changes to enforcement. The ICO will have the power to commission third parties at the expense of the controller or processor involved to undertake technical reports as to the circumstances of a data breach. It will also have the power to compel witnesses to attend and answer questions at interview. These are similar to powers that the Financial Conduct Authority currently has. The other change is at the moment, the ICO, if it's thinking of issuing a penalty notice, can issue what's called a notice of intent. And it then has six months from that date of the notice of intent to actually issue the penalty notice. And the legislation is proposing that's changed to allow the ICO to extend that in complicated cases where it simply can't reach that within six months. So lots and lots of changes within the data reform bill. We won't see what the actual detail in the bill itself will be. And that's where the I think the crux this lies. Plus, of course, as we said in last week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, whatever is in the bill then has to make its way through the House of Commons, has to be subject to consultation and has to be approved by the House of Lords. Personally, I suspect it's the House of Lords who may look at reining in some of the things that are proposed in the Data Reform Bill. So we will continue to watch the progress of the Data Reform Bill here on the GDPR Weekly Show and bring you updates whenever there's something to announce or where we've decided to look at a particular item of the bill and really drill down to it in greater detail. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To San Francisco now, and popular daycare and childcare communication applications are dangerously insecure, according to a recent analysis and may put children and parents at risk for data breaches. According to a report by the non-profit group Electronic Frontier Foundation, popular apps including Brightwell and High Mama lack two-factor authentication, making it possible for any malicious actor with access to a user's password to log in remotely. Meanwhile, in a reply to the organisation, Brightwell said that it was rolling out two-factor authentication for all admins and parents and claimed that they were the first partner to offer this level of security in the industry. Looking at a number of popular daycare and early education apps, we quickly found more issues than just the lack of two-factor authentication, the organisation said in the report. Through static and dynamic analysis of the several apps, we uncovered not just security issues, but previously compromising features as well. Issues like weak password policies, Facebook tracking, clear text traffic enabled, and vectors for malicious acts to view sensitive data. As per the organisation, another common trend for many daycare apps is relying on cloud services to convey their security posture. These apps often state they use the cloud to provide top-of-the-line security. It's crucial that the companies that create these applications do not ignore common and easily fit security vulnerabilities, the organisation said. Giving parents and schools proper security controls and hardening application infrastructure should be the top priority for a set of apps handling children's data, especially the very young children served by the daycare industry, it said. The organisation said it calls on all these services to prioritise the basic protection and guidelines that include making two-factor authentication available for admins and staff and addressing known security vulnerabilities in mobile applications. Those fixes would create a significantly safer and more private environment for data on children too young to speak for themselves. But there's always more that can be done to create apps that create industry benchmarks for child privacy, the organisation said. 
Way back in episode 79, we brought you details about a data breach at MGM Resorts in the USA. Uh, this week, miscreants have dumped on Telegram more than 142 million customer records stolen from MGM Resorts, exposing names, posters, and email addresses, phone numbers, and dates of birth, which would be useful to anyone wanting to carry out identity theft. The files, which totaled 8.7 gigabytes of data, indicate that at least 30 million people had some of their data leaked. We've reached out to MGM Resort to ask them about this data and to ask them whether the figure of 30 million people, which seems an awful lot, is correct. Um, but at the time of going to broadcast, they've not come back to us. The information includes the details of Twitter's Jack Dorsey and pop star Justin Bieber. Now, this isn't the first time these records have been seen. The Crooks initially sold 142 million records on a dark web marketplace for about $3,000 as a package deal. But this time, the data is freely available on Telegram. One theory is that the release of this data onto Telegram is linked to the recent takedown of stolen data market raid forums and the Hydra dark web. Or, of course, it could be that the info is no longer worth selling or no one's interested in buying. Now, this information is quite old. The data mainly relates to transactions back to 2017. If we get any further update from MGM Hotels and Resorts, we will of course bring it to you right here in the next verbal episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com To Australia now, and the Queensland government is considering forcing agencies to report data breaches to affected individuals and the state's privacy commissioner as part of proposed privacy and right to information reforms. The Department of Justice and the Attorney General on Friday released a consultation paper calling for feedback on the proposed mandatory data breach notification scheme, as well as a new set of privacy principles. It follows a series of reports over the last five years recommending changes to the state's Information Privacy Act 2009 and the Right to Information Act 2009, including through the introduction of a mandatory data breach notification scheme. Such a scheme was first recommended by the Office of the Information Commissioner in response to the Government's 2016 statutory review of the IP Act and again by the Crime and Corruption in 2020. The consultation paper says that a mandatory breach notification scheme would not only be good privacy practices but would enhance and protect the privacy rights of individuals. Consistency with the Commonwealth scheme would give individuals who deal with Queensland agencies the same protections as those have when dealing with federal government agencies, it said. No state or territory has implemented a mandatory data breach notification scheme to date. The New South Wales government, which pledged to introduce such a scheme in March 2020, unveiled an exposure draft of its legislation in May 2021, but is yet to introduce a bill to Parliament. The paper said that any mandatory breach disclosure and notification scheme will be based on the Commonwealth scheme, but agencies required to notify the state's Office of the Information Commissioner and any affected individuals of an eligible data breach. They say that an eligible data breach is where a reasonable person would conclude the unauthorised access or disclosure would be likely to result in serious harm to the affected individuals. Serious harm could include serious physical, psychological, emotional, financial or reputational harm. However, a data breach would not be deemed eligible if, for instance, an agency accidentally sent an email containing personal information to the wrong person, as long as it acted quickly to confirm that that data had been deleted. In addition to the mandatory data breach notification scheme, the paper also asked whether a single set of privacy principles should be adopted in Queensland, replacing two separate sets, the National Privacy Principles, MPPS, and Information Privacy Principles, IPPS. It said there are similarities and differences between the MPPS, which only applies to health agencies, and the IPPS, as well as the Australian Privacy Principles in the Commonwealth Privacy Act. 
the existence of two similar but not identical sets of privacy principles in Queensland, which are not consistent with the APPS, as the potential to rise to unjustified compliance costs, the paper says. The paper goes on to say that adopting a single set would reduce red tape and compliance costs. Like the current IPPS and MPPS, the proposed Greenland Privacy Principles, QPPS, would require agencies to take reasonable steps to protect personal information they hold from unauthorised access, use, disclosure, modernisation and form of any other misuse. The government is calling for feedback on whether the IP Act should prescribe an unexhaustive list of matters that must be taken into account by an agency when determining what reasonable steps would actually be. The paper also proposes that the definition of personal information be changed to reflect the Commonwealth Privacy Act 1988. To take into account newer detections of personal data, they have emerged since the definitions were last amended in 2012. Adopting the definition of personal information in the Privacy Act would ensure consistency between the Queensland Commonwealth regulatory frameworks is broader and more flexible than the current definition in the IP Act, it says. However, it arguably does not address the uncertainty identified by the Australian Competition Consumer Commission in relation to whether this definition captures a range of technical data. The paper also asks whether there is a need for a new criminal offence to prosecute public officers for inappropriately accessing and generally misusing confidential information under Section 408E, Computer Hacking and Misuse of the Criminal Code. It said the current use of the term computer hacking does not make it clear to public officers that accessing confidential information in the performance of their duties can also be a criminal offence if they're doing so for an improper purpose. Attorney General Shannon Fentiman said that while the state's privacy and information legislation had served it well over the last decade, there was a need to ensure it remains up to date. In Queensland, and indeed around the world, technological developments are impacting on information privacy and access to personal information, and it's crucial our legislation remains contemporary and relevant, she said. This consultation paper accordingly seeks views on whether significant changes should be made to Queensland's legislation framework for information privacy to enhance protections for personal information and remedies for individuals whose privacy has been breached. Submissions to the consultation close on July the 22nd, 2022, and once the results of the consultation are known, we will of course bring them to you as available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR Made Simple. Available now on Amazon. To Pittsburgh now, and the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center has agreed to a $450,000 settlement to resolve allegations relating to a 2020 data breach to compromise the protected health information of about 36,000 patients. An unauthorized user would gain access to email accounts of the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center's legal counsel, Charles J. Hilton and Associates, between April and June 2020. The compromised accounts contain personal health information, including social security numbers, birth dates, financial account numbers, identification numbers, signatures, medical records and insurance information. The University of Pittsburgh Medical Center notified patients of the data breach in December 2020, but a complaint alleged that the hospital and Charles J. Hilton and Associates failed to safeguard patient data and failed to establish adequate cybersecurity measures. Under the terms of the settlement, class members are entitled to make a claim for a $250 cash payment as reimbursement for documented out-of-pocket expenses related to the data breach and also claims of up to $2,500 to recover fraudulent charges and posts relating to identity theft, plus $30 for undocumented time spent dealing with the breach. All class members will also receive 12 months complimentary credit monitoring paid for by the University of Pittsburgh. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. 
We often talk on GDPR Weekly Show about data breaches and sometimes the compensation that companies have to pay out as a result of a data breach. But there are also lots of other costs that are associated with a data breach when it happens. Let's have a look at some of those. You've got the cost of actually sending the breach alerts to customers. Now, okay, if that's by email, that cost may be fairly minimal. If you happen to do that by post, then of course that can be quite a substantial sum, depending on the number of customers involved. You might also want to hire PR specialists to handle the public exposure of your data breach and to look at a way of how it can be exposed without too much damage to your reputation. But of course, those PR people need paying. You might get a fine from the ICO or from whoever the data protection authority is in the country where the breach occurs. You might need to hire specialists, and that might mean GDPR specialists like ourselves, or it might mean you know, actual attorneys or barristers if the case goes to court. You might need to hire cyber security firms to investigate the breach. You've also got the cost of dealing with the disruption to your operations that the breach causes. If you're a public company, if you're traded on a stock exchange, you'll probably want definitely a PR team because you want to manage the damage to your share price and ensure that that's minimised. And you also need to look at reduced trust because it's not just about your reputation, it's about that customers have to trust you. And the cost of a data breach can include the diminished trust, not just of your clients, but also your partners, your employees and any vendors, both today when the breach occurs and, of course, in the future. The same is true of customers, of course. You, you know, it may have an effect on you attracting new customers, but a data breach may mean that you lose existing ones too, so that can have a big hit, of course, a big financial cost to your company. And, of course, if the data breach actually took any intellectual property, then you've got to look at the loss that that causes you too, and assuming you make a claim on your business insurance that you have cyber security covered as part of your business insurance, when you make a claim, that's fine, but of course, in the next year, your insurance premium goes up. So all these things that together contribute to the cost of the data breach, which might actually, and probably will, far outweigh any financial penalty that you get served, you get all these additional costs to your business on top. And that's why if data breaches, as in so many things, prevention is definitely 100% better than cure. To Washington State now and MCG Health, based in Seattle, suffered a data breach in March this year resulting from unauthorised access. The software company provides patient care guidelines to providers and health plans using artificial intelligence and technology solutions. According to a recent entry to the HHS Office for Civil Rights data breach portal, the incident impacted 793,283 individuals. Since MCG disclosed the breach on June 10th, at least eight organisations have come forward and said they were impacted by the breach. The impacted data includes names, addresses, phone numbers, gender, date of birth, medical codes and social security numbers. The following organisations have issued separate notices about the breach. UNC Lennar Healthcare, Avera Health, CHI Health, Phelps Health, Henry County Medical Centre, Jefferson County Medical Centre, Indiana University Health and Newman Regional Health. Upon learning of this issue, MCG took steps to understand its nature and scope. A leading forensic investigation firm was retained to an investigation, MCG said. Additionally, MCG is coordinating with law enforcement authorities. MCG has deployed additional monitoring tools and will continue to enhance the security of its systems. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com To Maryland now and Trident Care, a mobile healthcare provider based in Sparks, Maryland, has had a daily breach. According to Trident Care, the breach resulted in the names, states of birth and social security numbers of affected patients being compromised. On June the 16th, 2022, 
trying to tear filed official notice of the breach and send out data breach letters to all affected parties. According to the notice posted on the company's website on April the 17th, 2022, a group of unauthorised individuals broke into one of Trident Care's offices, removing multiple hard drives and other equipment from the facility. In response, Trident Care notified law enforcement and then engaged the cybersecurity and data recovery professionals to investigate the incident as well as the impact on the company's patients. The results of the investigation confirmed that there had been patient data contained on the hard drives. However, the investigative team believes, although it cannot confirm, that the data was corrupted and thus inaccessible. If the data was not corrupted, Trident Care notes that it would have required certain technical capabilities to access the data. However, upon discovering this sensitive consumer data was potentially accessible to an authorised party, Trident Care reviewed the data contained on the hard drives to determine exactly why information was compromised and who may have been affected. While the breach information varies depending on an individual, it may include name, date of birth and social security number. If we get any update on this from Trident Care, we will just bring it to you in the next episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR Made Simple. Available now on Amazon. An interesting disagreement is brewing over whether location data is personal in data under the concept of GDPR. Some authorities in Europe insist that location data is not personal data as defined in GDPR. EU Privacy Group, NOYB, None of Your Business, set up for privacy warrior Matt Srems, said on Tuesday it appealed the decision of the Spanish Data Protection Authority, the AEPD, to support Virgin Telecom's refusal to provide the location data it stored about a customer. In Spain, according to NOYB, the government still requires telcos to record the metadata of phone calls, text messages and cell tower connections, despite European Court of Justice decisions that prohibit data retention. A Spanish customer demanded that Virgin reverse personal data as allowed under GDPR Article 15. GDPR Article 15 guarantees individuals the right to obtain their personal data from companies and store it. Personal data is any information that relates to an identified or identifiable living individual. Different pieces of information which collectively together can lead to identification of a particular person also constitute personal data. That's defined in GDPR. The EU example specifically cites location data as an example. There are other regulations like the e-privacy directive allow limited circumstances where location data may be anonymized and just non-personal data or disclosed to authorities. Virgin, however, refused to provide the customer's location data when a complaint was filed in December 2021, arguing that only law enforcement authorities demand that information and the AEPD sided with the company. NOYB says that Virgin Telco failed to explain why Article 15 should not apply since the law contains no such limitation. The fundamental right to access is comprehensive and clear. Users are entitled to know what data a company collects and processes about them, including notation data, argued Felix Michalash, a data protection attorney at NOYB. He went on to say, This is independent from the right of authorities to access such data. In this case, there is no relevant exception from the right to access. NOIB has taken its appeal to the Audiencia Nacional, Spain's national court. The group said it had filed a similar appeal last November in Austria, where that country's data protection authority similarly supported Austrian mobile provider A1's refusal to turn over customer location data. In that case, A1's argument was that location data should not be considered personal data, just someone else who uses a subscriber phone that generated it. Location data is potentially worth billions of dollars, according to Fortune Business Insights, Location analytics market is expected to bring in $15.7 billion in 2022 and $43.97 billion by 2029. Outside the EU, the problem is the availability of location data rather than lack of access. 
in the US, where there's no federal data protection framework, the government is a major buyer of location data is more convenient than getting a warrant. And companies that can obtain location data, often through mobile app software development kits, appear keen to monetize it. In 2020, the FCC fined the four largest wireless carriers in the US for failing to protect customer location data in accordance with a 2018 commitment to do so. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. We hope that you've enjoyed this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show and that you found the information useful and informative. We do really appreciate your feedback, so please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com with any comments you might have about the articles we've raised this week or indeed any suggestions you might have for improvements to the show. The GDPR Weekly Show is a insurance production. Please be advised that any advice given during the show is general in nature and should not be taken as specific legal advice. You should always seek legal advice according to your own specific circumstances. Until next time, bye-bye.